I want to think a little bit about grand scale interruptions. You know, I was thinking this past week how you can be just having a normal week, going to work, and then all of a sudden you find yourself at home. Uh, how you can have your kids in school, and then all of a sudden you find them at home as well. Uh, how instead of going out for dinner, you find yourselves together at home. It was an interrupting experience this week, was it not? It's weird to me that the way that we can most uh, help is by staying home and watching our TV. I think that's just weird. I mean, I feel like I want to make a difference. I want to uh, take care of people and, and, and move and be of service and, and help. And the message that just keeps coming is just stay home, buddy. Okay, well, we got that. You know, we can do that. This action that we're taking is not just because the government is telling us to. Friends, this is, this is our responsibility. We are loving our neighbors as we stay home. We are caring for those who are especially vulnerable to this incredible virus that is just running rampant. And so it's wise and it's, it's loving, I would say, to, to do this, to stay home and be careful. The reality is this coronavirus is a global issue and it is a tremendous interruption. I would call it a grand scale interruption. It is the kind of interruption that I have never had in my life. I don't remember ever having my life placed uh, in such a different setup within days. I mean, I feel like we've been in, in house arrest for a month, and it's only been just, what, just over a week, really, that we've been having to stay home. Grand-scale interruptions, like the one that we're in, are not common. But friends, the text before us today speaks of a grand-scale interruption that will make what we're experiencing now feel like nothing, feel like a, a speed bump in a parking lot. The kind of grand scale that Jesus is going to open our eyes to, the, the interruption that's coming is an interruption that is cataclysmic and has eternal consequences. And by God's grace, he's given us a warning in these words that we should heed and listen to today. And so that's where we come as we enter into this sermon I titled this sermon, The Supreme Moment of Truth. The Supreme Moment of Truth. Now, we are in a moment of truth right now, but it is not, compared to this that is coming, it is not the supreme moment of truth. So, let's just take our time, and we'll work our way through these verses uh, little by little. Uh, the, the Pharisees are asking Jesus here in verse 20, about the kingdom, the kingdom of God. And we see this topic come up again and again in Jesus' teaching. The kingdom of God, it was proclaimed by John the Baptist, and it's proclaimed by Jesus throughout his ministry, the kingdom of God. And so let's pick up the, the, uh, the, the text in verse 20 and see how it all unfolds. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, and he said this, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It's, it's in the midst of you. Well, what do we make of this? It's interesting about the, the question itself. It came from the Pharisees. So Jesus is teaching in the crowds. His disciples are there for this. And as he's teaching and preaching, the Pharisees chime in and they say, listen, 
Tell us, I mean, you keep talking about this kingdom, but we want to know when it's going to happen. Can you just give us that? Give us a little glimpse. Now, what would they have been thinking when they asked this question? Here's, I think, what they're thinking. They're looking around at Israel. At this time, the Roman Empire has a grip over all of Israel. They are an occupied nation. Jerusalem is under the, the thumb of the Roman emperor. And clearly we see that unfold in, in the life of Jesus. They are dreaming of the time when King David ruled and reigned in Jerusalem. When the city was truly flourishing and free. The high point of Jewish history uh, for the Israelites. And they're saying, boy, we'd like to see that happen. Jesus, are you suggesting that you're going to usher that in? Because if so, we'd like to see, you know, when, how's this going to unfold? This was a tremendous misconception. They were, they were drawing conclusions of what he was saying, and it was going in a totally opposite direction than what Jesus was actually saying. They wanted to see a political kingdom. But we understand that Jesus is speaking to them about a spiritual reality. It is a spiritual kingdom that he speaks of. It's not one that you can point to and say, oh, there it is. See, there, over there. And then he says this. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, for the Pharisees, they would have been like, well, uh, what are you talking about? Totally at a loss. What do you mean, in the midst of us? The irony of this exchange is that the Pharisees were speaking to the king of the kingdom and didn't know it. They, they were literally speaking to the one who was the king. And he, he was teaching them with his own words. You know, the Jehovah's Witnesses will often talk a lot about the kingdom, but rarely will they talk about the king. And I always want to bring that up. Well, let's talk about the king. Yeah, we talk about the kingdom. What is a kingdom without a king? This is the point Jesus is making. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. He's saying, I'm the king. I'm here. It's near. It's close. Closer than you even realize. The king and his kingdom. King Jesus came. He came the first time humbly to take upon flesh, become a man, the second member of the Godhead in the incarnation. And his mission was to live in perfect obedience, to proclaim the kingdom of God, and then to accomplish the purchase of sinners by laying his life down on the cross and bearing their sins, being buried and on the third day rising from the grave, victorious. It is a spiritual victory that he is accomplishing. The kingdom of God has a king, and his name is Jesus, and he is literally in their midst teaching them, and they don't know. This is, friends, what I would call the kingdom already. A lot of times when you deal with future prophecy, you deal in two categories. You deal in the already, and you deal in the not yet, okay? So let's consider the, the kingdom that is here, that is already here. That is Christ. The kingdom, defined biblically, would be the rule and reign of God. And he has sent his son, Jesus Christ, and so wherever the rule and reign of Jesus Christ is embraced, that, friends, is where the kingdom breaks in 
to this earth. His kingdom is, is, is breaking in everywhere someone submits their will and embraces the king as their savior and lord. There the kingdom is. That is the kingdom already. <clears throat> so, in living rooms all across this county right now, the kingdom of God breaks forth. It shines. It's near. It's here already, even in this room. It's the kingdom already. Now, we have to be careful because we don't want to say that the kingdom of God is simply a spiritual kingdom because it is that, but it's not only that. The kingdom that we know already is the rule and reign of Christ, but there is more to come because the not yet is going to bring a tremendous reality that is prophesied by Jesus here and by uh, a number of different biblical writers throughout the New Testament and even the Old. <clears throat> so we have the kingdom already and we have the kingdom that is coming, the kingdom not yet. Jesus goes on. Verse 22, he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. Now, some of these statements are difficult. Imagine being a disciple and hearing Jesus say that. Well, how do we process that? What does that mean? Here's what I think it means. There are some hard times coming. There are some dark days ahead. And you are going to wish that the king had returned. And you will not see him. You will long for his return. You will anticipate it. We're longing for the not yet. I think Jesus catches the heart of those who love the king, who have embraced the king, who love Christ with all their heart. It's the heart that I woke up praying this morning, come, Lord Jesus, come, come. We long for the not yet while we live in the fullness of the already. We know him, we love him, we have him as our savior, but we're waiting for his return and the consummation of all that is promised. We live in a broken world. This week was a testimony to that reality. Our world is broken. It's dark. I'm just thinking about all of the things I heard on the news. And, and even now, I mean, they, they did say that crime was going down. Thankfully, in some places it's gone down. Locally, in some places it's gone up, I've heard. But just think, look at this list. Evil, sin, suffering, sorrow, sickness, corona, right? The pandemic, darkness, violence, war, death. One of the things that hasn't received a lot of focus is the number of people who are dying all around the world. Every day the death toll rises. Friends, we're not there yet. This world is broken. This is heavy. There's a lot of darkness. This, is, this world is a mess. The question begs, is happily ever after just a fairy tale? Some people have given up. Listen, this world is messed up. It's all there is. And when you die, that's it. There's no future. It's just darkness. Is this wishful thinking? All these stories that end and they lived happily 
ever after. Sometimes when we go through difficult days, it's easy to begin to lose sight of what is coming. And it's all the more necessary at that point to remember what has been promised, what is coming. Friends, happily ever after is not just a fairy tale. It's not just wishful thinking. It is firm, solid, and certain. It's coming. It's promised. We will live happily ever after with our King together. He will wipe every tear from our eyes. And there will be no sickness or mourning or crying or pain for all of that has been done away and He's made all things new. That's coming. Revelation 5. So we pray while we wait. Thy kingdom come. O Lord, Father, Thy kingdom come. Come where? Well, come here. Come here. Well, what does it look like? That looks like your will being done. The kingdom of God is realized when His will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And so Jesus Himself taught us to pray this prayer, this prayer of, of longing and expectation. Lord, bring Your kingdom, oh, bring Your kingdom here and bring it in my heart today and help me to obey You and then through that, May, may that influence affect others to obey you as well and bow before you. Bring your kingdom on this earth as it is currently in heaven. Hmm. Jesus goes on. <clears throat> in verse 23, he says, And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out and follow them. For as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in His day. These are interesting verses. Note the title that he uses. As lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so the Son of Man. Okay, This is a very significant title. Jesus uses it four times in this passage alone. He, it was His favorite title to describe Himself. The Son of Man. What's he getting at? Well, there will be a time where people will wonder if they missed his return. Things will see bleak, seem bleak and, and dark and hopeless, and, and they'll be saying, my goodness, maybe we missed it. Maybe, maybe it's just not going to happen. Or is that, you think that may be the Savior? Is that Jesus? Is that the return of the King? Is that, is that the one? Or others, I've heard this question, what if, what if we're already in the, the not yet? What, what if instead of just living in the already, what if we're already in the not yet and this is what it looks like? And to those people, I would say, I sure hope that's not the case because this is a mess. What if he already turned long ago and this is what it looks like? Friends, no, no, that is not the case. Jesus says, make no mistake about it. When I come back, you will know it. Every eye will see. It will be completely unmistakable. Now, it, it, it's going to take some time. You're going to be longing for the not yet for a while. And here we are, 2,000 years later, right? Who knows how long it might be from now? It could be another 2,000 years. But when he returns, it is going to be absolutely unmistakable. And every eye will see. 
Think about lightning shooting across the sky. Now, we don't get a lot of lightning in this area, but my goodness, growing up, visiting Texas all the time, I loved their thunderstorms and the lightning bolts that would just cover the sky. Now, I remember when I was in Yakima one time, I was pulling in hay uh, before a storm was coming. We were trying to get the hay in, and we were near the hay barn. There was a telephone pole about from here to there, and I was pulling a, a, a bale of hay off the truck and ready to throw it in, and lightning and thunder hit just right there, and it hit that pole and ran down that pole, but there was no separation. It was an explosion of noise and light, and I was flat on the ground. I dropped completely flat to the ground. It scared me. I thought I was a dead man. It'll be like that, only a thousand times more. Imagine the thunder of a lightning that would shred around the world like that. We're talking the nations will know. In fact, in Revelation 1-7, this is what it's uh, described like. Behold, he, that is King Jesus, is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will what? Will wail. They will wail on account of him. That's an interesting point of emphasis that is predicted. This is prophetic. It is going to come, and the nations will wail. We'll see that connect here in a minute. In Daniel, where the Son of Man phrase is used, um, this text that Jesus is drawing on is really taking cues out of Daniel chapter 7. It's tremendous. Listen to what Daniel prophesies. I saw in night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. That's Jesus' title for himself. And he came to the ancient of days. Now, who's that? That's the Father, God the Father. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, to the Son of Man, Jesus, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Friends, Daniel speaks of what Jesus speaks about here, of what revelation. Do you see the unity of the Bible? Isn't it spectacular? This is one story that God is telling in various points along the way through various voices and pens and accomplishing this, and he's telling it to us now. And we might, we've got to make sure we listen, that we're hearing these words. Jesus goes on and he says this, but first... He, the Son of Man himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Now, this is uh, kind of a foreboding reminder that Jesus is drawing nearer and nearer to the cross. He has set his face to go to Jerusalem to accomplish his work that he came to do. We're, we're literally weeks away from this now. In the text, just a, a chapter and a half away before the week begins of the Passion. He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. The suffering is coming very soon. It's on Jesus' mind every day. He knows what is awaiting him in Jerusalem. And he is resolved to take it on 
the full brunt of the wrath of God to accomplish salvation for sinners and to populate the kingdom of God with forgiven sinners. All of grace. Amazing. I think he also speaks here of an ongoing rejection. It's not just the generation that Jesus lived in. It's this generation. The generation that is in, in view of the gospel, hearing the proclamation of the gospel, and yet continuing to harden their heart. Both Jew and Gentile, right? The ongoing rejection of Christ. This is evidenced in the wailing of the nations that is prophesied that will happen when he returns. Instead of rejoicing, the nations are wailing. We continue into the last section that Jesus has for us today. He's going to preach from the Old Testament, from two very significant places, and I think it's significant that we see this as well. Some people say, you know what, the Old Testament isn't important. Well, it was to Jesus. I mean, Jesus is preaching a sermon from the Old Testament. He's referenced Daniel. Now he's going back to the book of Genesis. He's calling us to remember the past and to be ready for his return. Remember the past. And one of the things that I find fascinating is when you go through a, a, a mass pandemic like this, you, you tend to look back. Well, what have people done before us? We've never faced anything quite like this. What did they do with the bubonic plague? How did they address that? How did they deal with other pandemics that have hit and spread around the world? Jesus is saying, listen, look back. Look back and let it inform the present as you prepare for what is to come. Verse 26. Just as in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. For they were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. But on that day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. And then he says this. This should give us chills, friends. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Okay, so we're looking back to massive displays of divine judgment, to cataclysmic executions of wrath and punishment for rebellion and sin. Let's take uh, this at, at, at large picture, just to say this up front. First of all, uh, Jesus is not coming to these texts and saying, well, you know, the Old Testament, that Genesis book, it's, it's probably, you know, more or less to be interpreted as great stories, but certainly not literally, and not like it actually happened. That's not Jesus. That's not what he believes. He's, he's saying these things took place, and ironically, at his hand. He is the one who has executed this justice. And this divine wrath has fallen from heaven. And so it's not like he's wondering if this actually happened. Because, friends, he was there. This fell from his own hand. 
These events are real. People who, who would whitewash the Bible of its miracles or of, of its wrath and judgment. That's foolish. And we dare not do that. Who do we think we are? I'm, I'm sticking with Jesus, right? His opinion counts. All those higher critics that are teaching you in college, I think they fall short. Their credentials just don't measure up. Go with Jesus. So Noah and the flood, think about this. You've got a man who is tasked to build a boat, not just a small boat, but a, a, a container ship-sized boat. And he's to build this boat in a location where there's no water. And he's to build this boat in a, a place where likely, scientists suggest, there hadn't ever, ever been any rain because of the atmospheric conditions before the flood. And so you have a man who takes with his sons and sets out to build a massive boat basically in the desert. And as he is building, he is proclaiming. He, he's called a preacher of righteousness. He's proclaiming, repent, judgment is coming. Don't wait around. You guys need to help out. Join this cause. Believe in what the word of the Lord is. Come, participate. No one listened. He became a mockery. He became a, probably a, a local laughing point. People would come, oh, you gotta see, have you seen the crazy guy building a boat? Building a what? The boat, right? Think of the scorn. Think of what it would like, be like to be Noah's sons, right? You're walking around town trying to buy supplies, mocking. They, they, they refused his message. They hardened their hearts. They went about their business. Think about this. They were living normal but godless lives. They were eating and drinking. That's not wrong. They were marrying and being given in marriage. That's not wrong if it's according to God's standards. Until the divine interruption fell from heaven. The day when they're walking through the market, having fun, getting ready to celebrate again that night, and, and a raindrop hits someone on the forehead. And they're like, wow, that was weird. Is that a bird? What was that? It's my, my forehead's wet. And then more raindrops. And people are like, oh, this is weird. There's water falling from the sky. And then the fountains of the deep burst forth and the water begins to rise and they're looking around like, well, that, something serious is going on here. We should probably do something. It is striking to me in the story of the ark, the account as it's told in Genesis that it is not Noah who closes the door. He obeys the Lord. He loads up the boat. He has his wife, his three sons and their wives and they're in the boat and it is the Lord who closes the door himself and seals it from the outside. What do we make of this? Friends, there is a point along the timeline when the preaching stops, when the calls to repentance cease, when the opportunity literally closes in your face. And there is no more time. There is no more time. You can pound on that door all you want. You can scream and yell as the waters rise. But you are going to face judgment and wrath. And the time for repentance is today. That's the point. That's what Jesus is saying. There's coming a day when the door will close. 
Don't be caught. Listen. And take heed of this warning. Go on to consider the city of Sodom, a city that was characterized not only by sin, rampant sin, but, but sexually deviant sin. All kinds of horrible, uh, abominable practices taking place in the city of Sodom. For some insane reason, Lot, who is described as a righteous man in the New Testament, chose to live there and to make his home there and to keep his family in the middle of all of that. The city was especially characterized by homosexuality and rampant sin and all kinds of deviant expressions of it that fly completely against what God has called us to in His Word. And because it was so horrific, a display, probably gay pride parades every day and on down the line, you know, uh, diversity day was every day. God said, that's it. That's it. The evil has reached a crescendo and judgment is going to fall. And so he went by his grace and he pulled out Lot and his family. And as they fled from the city, fire fell from heaven and consumed, destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. What were they doing before this took place? Moments before fire fell, they were eating, they were drinking, they were buying homes, they were selling, they were planting, they were building, they were doing all the things that we were doing over a week ago without a care in the world. Look how quick things can change, friends. The cataclysmic interruption that it was for them is prophesied for us on a scale we can't even fathom. And it's coming. That's what Jesus says. He says it's coming. We've got to be ready. I feel like this text may be meeting us at a time where readiness is, is kind of forefront in our minds. Are we ready? It's good to ask that question. Am I ready for the return of the king? Righteous judgment. God is not unjust. He never overdoes his punishment, nor does he ever underpunish. He executes judgment in perfection as retribution would require by his righteousness and his justice. It is going to come. Jesus said there's coming a day when I will return and judgment will fall. The door will close. Take heed, listen now. He goes on to say this, On that day let the one who is on the housetop with goods in his house not come down to take them away, and likewise the one who is in the field not turn back. And then he just says, Remember Lot's wife. Pause there for a second. Don't turn back like she did. Do you remember that look that she had? As they're escaping the city, they're running for their lives. Lot's wife turned back. Was it just a look? No. It was a longing. It was her heart saying, I love that city more than the deliverance I'm experiencing now. I want that. And as a result, she was judged. 
instantly killed under the wrath of God, turned into a pillar of salt where she stood. Jesus says, don't long for that. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. And then he goes on to say these words. I I tell you, in that night there will be two in bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And then we have verse 36, which is not in the original manuscript. So in the ESV, it's just a number. There's no letters or, or words there. In the New American Standard, they put it in brackets to be clear. And this is another piece that I appreciate the care with which our uh, people that, that handle translations give to the text. The earliest manuscripts don't contain this. Other ones later do. And so it's, you could add, I guess, but lightly so. Two men will be in a field. One will be taken, the other left. The, the same point is getting across in Jesus' own words. The dividing line is clear. It is the supreme moment of truth. Imagine a couple sleeping in their bed, side by side. One of them has embraced the king. One of them has trusted Christ as Savior. One of them has longed for his return and and groaned under the weight of sin and darkness, waiting for the day when the heavens will open and he will come. The other one has stayed in the darkness, happy to be in the dark, has, has delighted in the things of this world, has replaced the, the, the place that Christ should have with, with items and things and stuff, and has given himself fully to the just normal, godless living of the world. Eating and drinking. Marrying and being given in marriage. Building houses. Going to work. In that moment, one will be taken and delivered, and the other sentenced to eternal fire and judgment. The supreme moment of truth will come. It will come. It speaks to the urgency of the situation. Jesus is basically saying, there's not time. If you wait till that point, it's too late. The door is closed. You don't have time to run down and and get right with the king. If he's coming and the lightning bolt goes off and the trumpet sounds and the clouds are rolled back and he returns, it's over. It's over. The urgency of the situation is now. That's what he's saying as he preaches this sermon from the Old Testament. He's calling people in the crowd. He's calling us here today. Make your decision now while the door is still open. And then the disciples chime in. Now, picture this. The Pharisees are in the crowd, and they're probably trying to process all these things. The disciples are closer to Jesus, and they're, they're, they're petrified by these words. What, well, what in the world? They, they ask, where, Lord? Where? And Jesus' response is a very straightforward response, quite blunt. He says, listen, where the corpse is, There the vultures will gather. The disciples are are wondering, where in in the world is this going to happen? Like, we don't want to be there when that happens. We want to be with you. Is there a place that this is going to happen? Like Sodom. If it's a city, we won't be there. And Jesus' response is, 
This is going to be a global phenomenon. The lightning will wrap around the world. And those who are not found as those who've embraced the king, they will die. And it's everywhere, all around the world. And where the body falls, the vultures will gather. There is no one place that this judgment will fall. This is a global judgment and a global deliverance that is held out today. It is held out today to the nations. For God so loved the world, the world, the call to the nations, come, come, repent of your sins, find a king, a Lord, a Savior. Embrace him. That call goes out today, but it will not go out forever. There's a timeline that only the Lord knows. And it'll happen on a normal day when no one expects it. Just, just a side note, when people, they get all hopped up about a timeline or they pick a date and they're, they're telling everybody this is when Jesus is going to return, you cannot predict this return. No one will know. It'll be a normal day. A supreme interruption. Cataclysmic interruption. So how do we respond to this? What should our response be in the midst of these things? I would just ask this morning... Are you experiencing, even in the midst of this crisis that we're going through with corona, are you experiencing a quote-unquote normal life? Or are you experiencing a kingdom life? Here's the difference. Who's on the throne of your heart? Who runs the show in your life? Who makes the call about who you are, what you do, what's most important? how you spend your days, what you live for when you get out of bed in the morning, what matters most, what you speak most about, delight most in, bow down to, who is on the throne in your heart? If it's you, then be warned today. You have not yet embraced the king, but the call today is to do so. That's the call. Embrace the king. Put him on the throne of your heart. Bow before him. Make him your Lord and Savior. Trust in him. His finished work on your behalf is enough. He is Savior and he is to be the Lord of your life. So are you walking in kingdom life or are you just living your life? Here's another way to get at it. Do you long to see him? I mean, do, do you long for his return? Does your heart groan when you feel the weight of all these things? And just say, oh, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. If not, then he may not be your king. He may not be your hope in this life and the next. That's a good indicator for you. Is it normal life or is it kingdom life? I would just call this morning like Noah called, like Lot was delivered. Embrace that deliverance. 
embrace your king as Savior, King Jesus. He has finished the work. He has accomplished all that you need to be saved. Embrace him as Savior and Lord, and you will be secure in him. Come what may, right? Corona or his return. You're safe. You are safe in him. You are forgiven. You are sheltered. You're his. And you can rejoice at his return. Not join the nations in wailing and fear. Those who have embraced Jesus as their king will not just rejoice in that day, but they can rejoice every day until that day. There is every reason in the midst of this challenge to have perfect peace. Why? Because he has promised to keep those whose eyes are on him in his perfect peace. Have you embraced Jesus as your Savior and your King? I was thinking about Psalm 98. Isaac Watts, the great uh, Puritan writer, hymn writer, he wrote Joy to the World, our, our favorite uh, Christmas hymn. He wrote that out of Psalm 98. And I was just sitting in that psalm the other day and was struck by the words. Think of how these words form a backdrop to the words that Jesus has given. And I'll just close with this as I read. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Has he not? The proclamation goes out today. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. And then the call, make a joyful noise to the Lord. All the earth, not just the people, but break forth into joyous songs and sing praises. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. There it is. He comes. Why can we do this? Why can we join creation in anticipation and sing joy to the world? Because he's coming. He's coming. But he's not just coming this time like he came the first time. He comes again to judge the earth. To put an end to evil and sin and darkness and sickness and suffering and sorrow. He is coming. We have every reason to rejoice. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Oh, friends, believers, those who have embraced this king, we have every reason to sing because he is coming again. It may not be in this lifetime that we have here. It may it may be a thousand years or two thousand years from now. Who knows? But here's the call of Jesus Christ to us today. Here's what he's saying Be ready. Be ready. Be prepared. Embrace the King. Let's pray. Father, as we consider these things, we just we thank you for these warnings, for this, this call that would pull us from our just dangerous, normal lives. We've experienced what it's like to be interrupted this past week, but Lord, nothing like this, nothing like what you describe here is coming. And so we, we long, Lord, 
we pray that we would be used to prepare as many people as possible. That those who don't know you would hear from us the joy that we have as we await your return. That they would hear the the good news of the gospel that sinners like, like us could be forgiven and set free. Oh, Lord, we long for the day when you return. We, we long for the day when we will join with all believers from all time, all around the world, and celebrate your personal, visible, physical return to this earth to rule and reign in a real kingdom, not just a spiritual kingdom like we have already, but a physical kingdom on this earth. We long for that day. And Lord, as we wait, we, we, we just pray, come Lord Jesus, come. Find us faithful, find us longing, find us awaiting your return. Show your grace, we pray. Bring others to join this longing, this, this anticipation. Reach to the ends of the earth and use us, Lord, to do so as we proclaim this good news of our great King. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.